Welcome to Asia-Pacific Defense Reporter, your go-to source for cutting-edge security insights in the region. Get ready for rapid-fire analysis and commentary from the Asia-Pacific with your host, Kim Bergman. Hello and welcome back. In the security domain, everything in the last few days has been overshadowed by events in the Middle East. I refer in particular to the attack launched into southern Israel on October the 7th by Hamas Palestinian militants that really goes back to the worst days of Islamic State and committing crimes against humanity at a mass scale, Uh, the killing of innocents, women, children, babies, apparently, abductions. I mean, all truly horrible stuff. Now, I'm approaching this topic with some trepidation for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's just a very very sensitive, highly emotional matter for many people. And secondly, the situation is changing on the ground. And as I've mentioned before, there's a delay of of a few days between when I record these podcasts and, um, uh, and what's happened in between. So I'll just say at the moment, as I'm speaking, the IDF is, that's the Israeli Defense Forces, gearing up for its official policy of massive over-retaliation. This is how Israel runs these sorts of operations, a kind of two eyes for an eye philosophy. So we can expect to see far more loss of civilian life in Gaza, as long as, as well as any militants that are, that are identified and killed in it. I'm like any civilized human being, greatly troubled about the fate of the hostages. We know very little about the exact numbers, let alone where they're located or their precise circumstances. Now, this is sort of a little bit outside the normal scope of these podcasts, because what I'm talking about isn't really directly connected with Australia and procurement and things like that. But it does have a security dimension and occasionally I've brought in other pressing, urgent foreign policy things like what's happening in the Ukraine. So uh, if people will bear with me, and I assume there's sufficient interest, I'll just go through some of the very basics in all of this. I'm not going to review 4,000 years of history, but of course the three faiths, they all had their origins with the, the prophet Abraham. Judaism being the first, Christianity the second, and Islam being the third. They're the three great religions of of Abraham. And unfortunately, because of their proximity in a certain sense, I mean, a theological sense, rather than that that leading to uh, unity, it's frequently led to conflicts. Now, what part religion plays in all of this, that's almost another topic for discussion. It's often cited as the reason or the cause, but a few of us who have looked into these things really wonder whether sometimes it's an excuse or a convenient way of identifying something where the causes are something different, a little more basic, ethnic dislikes, that, that sort of thing. Anyway, the horrible events of Saturday and Sunday They go into a similar, some would say worse, category of things like Bukha in Ukraine, uh, Shrebnitsa in the Balkans, if we want. 
we can keep on going all the way back through history, including the First Crusade and the conquest of Jerusalem in the the middle of the year 1099. And that was one of history's truly awful events as well. Now, my point is that these terrible events should, should never be downplayed, but likewise, I think that it's important to see them in some sort of context. If we're going to understand from these things, if we're going to learn from them, and if there's ever the slightest hope of ending them or even reducing them, I think that it's very important to try and understand what is behind this. All of the, the immediate focus, it's like any tragedy, an air crash, okay? It's a it's a poor analogy because this was a deliberate act. It wasn't an accident, but just bear with me for a moment. The focus tends to be on the effects. It's what we see, particularly on TV, and the grieving families, and all of this very understandably emotional stuff. It's only later that people start to analyze and think, well, why is it that this has happened, and are there things that we can do to try and minimize the prospects of recurrence. So I'm going to say in that fashion, when I look at what's happening at the moment, and I say this with the you know greatest love and respect for my Israeli friends, who I really do feel for under these terrible circumstances, I think it, it will be important in time, not now, emotions are still running too hot, to be looking at things like the blockade of the Gaza Strip for the last 15 years in particular, and the government of Israel seemingly moving further away from the two-state solution and all of those sorts of things. Look, I can understand the desire for revenge. I, I think many of us can. It must be so visceral. But what I can say is that I think just like in one's private life, when you do something like that, might make you feel temporarily better, but it doesn't fix the problem. And what's going to happen as short as night follows day, if half of Gaza is pulverized, as well as the members of Hamas dying, if we're talking about thousands of civilian deaths and hostages, and by the way, some United Nations workers, volunteers, have already lost their lives, tragically, What's going to happen is that in another 10 years or another 15 years' time, the anger and the resentment is going to be so great amongst the survivors that they will again be looking for a way to strike back. So, yes, to join in with a whole lot of others, I'm keeping my fingers crossed that a degree, a degree of restraint is exercised. That's not code for going easy on Hamas. It's a very direct statement, please let's hope that not too many more innocents are killed in all of this, because if they are, it's just going to make the problem worse in the future. As I say, not quite the time now, but also I think it would be unhealthy to be caught up in a process of censorship. I can well remember in the aftermath of the 9-11 attacks on the World Trade Center and then in the you know 2014 when we had the Islamic State on the rampage in Syria and Iraq and all of the awful 
things that they did. There was a tendency amongst some of our political leaders and some of our commentators to basically say, look, it's as simple as this. These people hate Western civilization. full stop. It can't be anything more than that. You cannot acknowledge that there are any other problems. They are simply barbarians and they have to be exterminated for whatever reason. Well, I don't sign up to that. I don't, well, without being able to look into the heart of every single person who has committed crime, I just think that there's a huge amount of evidence out there to say that life is a little bit more complicated than that. And I think that in the fullness of time, there has to be a rethink about some fairly fundamental issues in the Middle East. Okay, that's the philosophical and historical part from me for today. I'm sorry about that. I do apologize if I've touched on raw nerves. I've tried to be as gentle as I possibly can under difficult circumstances. On a more practical sense, one of the very quick comments, plural, has been, well, it's been a massive failure on the part of Israeli intelligence. How could Israel, a company, a country, I'm sorry, that's in a state of pretty much permanent high alert, could have been taken by surprise, not just by the, the initial series of attacks, but because it took many hours for the IDF to begin to effectively respond. And the quick thing is intelligence failure. I think the most important thing to recognise is the importance of intelligence. And that's a reminder for Australia and all other countries. The more that you know about what's going on in the region, the better you are prepared to deal with all sorts of contingencies. Now, on the fundamentals, I don't know whether it was a failure of Israeli intelligence, because you would have to know what, if anything, had been picked up from signals intelligence and human sources and things like that, and synthesized and passed on. Now, it might be that there were multiple failings and that no warnings were given. However, with these sorts of crises or unexpected events that have occurred in the past, 9-11 springs to mind, the lead up to the 2003 invasion of Iraq, there has been a lot of intelligence floating around, some of which in retrospect, you could have put it all together and said, oh yeah, it's blindingly obvious that an, an attack was being planned or weapons of mass destruction never existed. Much more difficult at the, at the time. I don't know. We will just have to wait and see on that one. It might be that the Israeli intelligence services were doing all that they could. It could be that the problem was elsewhere in the system at a higher level, at a political level, because, of course, you can have the best intelligence in the world, but then you need leaders with enough maturity to accept the accuracy, validity, and honesty with which the information is being presented. If you don't have that, then you're going to have political leaders making decisions based on <clears throat> prejudices and based on hearsay and based on just whatever is popping up into their heads. 
let's just put a placeholder in that. that. That's one that we might come back to in a few months' time when we know a little bit more about what's going on. Uh, now, this was kind of a neat segue because another great intelligence failure was around the Korean War. Not so much the beginning of it, where all of the Korean Peninsula was still recovering from the Second World War. The communists occupied the northern half, the, well, United States and South Koreans, the second half. The, the attack by the North was a genuine surprise, but that was really because there weren't that many well-established intelligence networks figuring out what was going on. But the real intelligence failure, the genuine intelligence failure, came uh, later in the year, in 1950, when the Western forces, of which Australia was part, was a United Nations mission. US played the leading role along with troops from South Korea. They pushed all the way back up the Korean peninsula. And China had been sending out these signals through mainly through diplomatic channels, but also a lot of their activity was pretty highly visible. And they were sending out the signals if you come close to our border, which was marked by the Yellow River, Y-L-Y-A-L-U, if you do that, we are going to strike back. Now, that intelligence was passed on to the, to the Supreme Commander, General Douglas MacArthur, the famous American general of the Second World War, who ignored it. He ignored repeated warnings. He basically said, I do not believe that China has the capacity to behave in this sort of way. I also don't think that they will do it because they're too scared of us, that sort of thing. A disastrous intelligence failure. Anyway, the segue is that uh, next week I'm actually going to be in South Korea for an exhibition called ADEX. And if you're all lucky, I'll be reporting from there and we'll be doing it from another country and in slightly different circumstances. And that's sort of a cue to mention a couple of other regional things. South Korea, just mentioned them. They're in the process of buying an additional 25 F-35A aircraft to go with their already formidable air force. Indonesia, they're also beefing up their air force. They have a second tranche of Rafale Omniroll fighters coming from Dassault. That's on the way to a fleet of 42. They've also ordered 24 Boeing F-15EX. So Indonesia has gone from having a, I would, I would say, to be frank, a negligible air force, you know, competent, but all sorts of bits and pieces of equipment, some ex-Russian stuff, to now moving to a very modern force. So after the the Rafale and the Boeing F-15. In the longer term, they are involved in the Korean KF-21 program, a twin jet supersonic combat aircraft. Now, in the meantime, as well as that, as well as the two classes of, of Russian jets that they've got, they're going to take as an interim solution for the Rafale, 12 Mirage 2000s, second-hand ones, so they're beefing up. In Japan, they're building frigates, destroyers, and submarines. They've also got more F-35s on order. They've got a sixth-generation combat aircraft program going, uh, partly in conjunction with the United Kingdom. Korea, again. Frigates, destroyers, submarines, 
both Japan and Korea will you know have around 20 conventional submarines. Compare that with Australia's six aging Collins class, and who knows when we're going to get replacements. Taiwan. Taiwan is worth a mention because Taiwan unveiled their first conventional diesel electric submarine, the details of which are very strictly hidden. looks to be about 2,000 tonnes. We do know that it has a US combat system from Lockheed Martin. We also know that it has Mark 48 torpedoes, the same ones that the Royal Australian Navy uses, also from Lockheed Martin. looks like a highly capable submarine on the smaller end of the scale, but nevertheless a highly capable submarine. The program started in 2016. Get this, Australian listeners in particular, construction commenced in 2020. It's just been launched, getting towards the end of 2023, three years later, and it's going to be delivered by the end of the by the end of the year. It's going to be delivered to the Navy. Meanwhile, as I say back here, submarines off to the never never. The review into the surface fleet, I've commented on this previously, delayed until we're told before the end of February, which I think is journalist code for mid-January, when everyone will be on holidays and watching the cricket and no one will care. Why would the government be releasing their response to the review then? Well, because they don't have the money to do anything or they'll have to make some unpopular decisions or, or something along those lines. Now, okay, with an eye on the clock, I hadn't quite finished my imaginary conversation with US Defence Secretary Lloyd Austin, but but so I'll add on a, a codicil, so to speak, to that. Uh, and that relates again to this big problem that Australia has signed up for about disposing of nuclear-powered submarines in Australia. I cannot understand why this has been done. I can shed a bit more light on it in the future, but even that's not very satisfactory. In that case, if it's such a big deal, why didn't we just lease them from the United States? Why don't I say to Secretary Austin, look, we don't have the resources or the legal ability to dispose of the submarines, so it's going to be a legal a legal nightmare if we purchase them. But on the other hand, What's wrong with the lease arrangement? We'll give you a billion dollars a year. You pick the number. We're prepared to throw anything at you because we are so desperate for these things. Make it two billion a year as long as when they get to the end of their service life at 33 years, you take them back and you dispose of them. The only reason I can think of why we would agree to do it in Australia and set up our own huge enormously expensive, risky, from a health point of view, facility for disposing of nuclear submarines is that some sort of backroom deal has been done where Australia at a future point will take submarines from the UK and take submarines from the US. It sounds monstrous. It is almost getting into QAnon conspiracy theory stuff, but I can't think of anything else. Now, I'm going to conclude with a few words on another recurrent theme, Taipan helicopters. I've mentioned several times that the helicopters are fine. My information is that I can now be a little bit more certain about my information that the talisman saber fatal crash 
Army has concluded that the problem wasn't the helicopter. They've done their initial analysis. I believe that that advice has gone to the government. Everyone in defence is actively suppressing information. I'm told that people in Army will have their security clearances cancelled and they will be sacked if they breathe a word of this. Yes, listeners, this is the world that Australia is now in. What's the reason for suppressing the information? Well, we come back to the basics. If the helicopters are fine, they should still be flying, particularly during the the summer crisis season with bushfires and potentially floods, and also that commandos and special forces can do any hostage rescue work in the event that something truly awful happens. You'd have to I'm pointing the finger at uh, at the government if you really want to know why they have been prematurely withdrawn from service. You might ask people from the Prime Minister down. Okay, well, thank you very much for listening. As I mentioned, my next report will be coming from Seoul and I'll be having a short break after that. Bye for now. That's today's Asia-Pacific Defence Reporter. For more in-depth articles, expert opinions and exclusive interviews, visit asiapacificdefensereporter.com. Stay informed, stay ahead. This is your source for all things defence. Until next time.